Any uh, accomplished artist or author will tell you that the, every story has both a plot and a, a subplot, and that the subplot is just as important a, to, the, to the story as is the main plot, because it's the subplot that gives substance and depth uh, to the story. And so it is with Jonah, particularly here in Jonah chapter 1, because beneath the storyline there is a, a subplot, there is another uh, important story uh, that we see, but sometimes we just gloss over rather than gleaning from it and, and benefiting from. Now, the main plot, everybody seems to be pretty familiar with. I mean, children, uh, Christians, Muslims, Jews, everybody, even non-believers, uh, are fairly familiar with, with the story of Jonah. It's about a man who is running from God. It's really about the relationship uh, about a, a man who worships a God that he doesn't understand, a man who serves a God that he doesn't particularly like because he doesn't understand him. And he's now coming face to face with the fact that this God that he worships, this God who has called him and who he has served, actually is broader in his grace uh, than this man wants him to be. He is more loving and more compassionate than, than we give him credit for, and certainly more loving and gracious than we often are. And, and so we see a, a real conflict here in terms of narrative. It's not about uh, man against nature, although there's part of that. It's not even really primarily man against man. It's man against himself uh, because it's man against God. That's the, the primary uh, plot uh, of Jonah, and pretty much everyone understands that. But beneath that primary plot, we, we see another uh, story that is taking place here uh, in the opening scene, and that is a relationship between this man and his immediate neighbors, uh, this man and the sailors that are on this particular ship that he jumps aboard in order to run from God, who is the primary player within this story. And these sailors are not insignificant. In fact, we learn a lot from the sailors. We learn really what the God's purpose for the sailors are, are is whatever the right English is in the moment. We'll clean that up later on. But, uh, but, uh, but we see that God has a purpose for the sailors in, in Jonah's life. And what we see by the end of this chapter is that Jonah comes to recognize, or at least by the end of the story when he's looking back, uh, that the purpose of the sailors is for Jonah to recognize that God has called him and therefore he exists for them. But there's also a purpose for us as well because what the sailors teach Jonah is important for us because through these sailors, God is teaching us how we are to relate to the outside world around us. Now, there's two primary things that I want to dig into as we consider this uh, part of the story this morning. And the first is that we recognize that everyone has a religious bent. And second is that God has called his people uh, to live their lives to the benefit of the watching world around us. Now, foundationally, we need to recognize who the people are that uh, in the story and really as they reflect the people who are around us as well. And, and so it's important that we recognize this, that everyone has a religious bent. Romans 1 tells us that from the very beginning. As, as, as Romans unfolds, kind of here's the way God is at work uh, in this world and redeeming a people and the purpose for that people. It says that God is revealed to the entire world through creation and through uh, the means by which he preserves everything. Uh, he's revealed that there is a God to such an extent that no one is left without excuse. 
there's, as a consequence, if you look at uh, sociological studies of peoples around the world, uh, all through history, we recognize that everybody has an inclination toward God, toward religion, whether they know the God who has created everything uh, or they have only approximation. There's a religious bent toward everything. It's because God has said there's so much revelation that people instinctively know that there is a God and we have to deal with that God, whether or not we want to. Bob Dylan, the you know, legendary folk singer, puts it a little more pithy, everyone will serve someone. Maybe the devil, it may be the Lord, but everyone's going to serve somebody. I remember back when I was in college, one of my professors, uh, Dr. Stan Lusby, uh, shared with us a series of essays that he wrote in the early 1970s that was really an illustration of this thesis that everyone serves, everyone worships someone or, or something. It, it, apparently, years before, he had uh, done a, a study and uh, had uh, written uh, extensively uh, about it. And the focus of his attention was the religious expression of Southerners in worship at college football games. And he looked at the, the, the way that they performed their liturgical dance, standing, cheering, yelling, the rituals that they went through before they prepared for the acts of worship, and, and then even their, their response uh, and afterwards, whether they had seen the prevail or in defeat. And, and as he, he wrote this series of essays, he showed that there's an orientation towards worship, whether it is right or whether it is weird. And that caught on because apparently soon after, because he shared with us, there were other essays. Some guy in Athens, Georgia, another guy in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, decided to write essays about their own denominations uh, in their towns. And, you know, but if we look all around us, we we see this, this inclination towards worship some way or another that is inherent in, in all people. And we see in these sailors that their instinct towards religion, because it says that when the storm uh, started raging, each of them cried out to their own God. Now, it's highly unlikely that every one of them boarded the ship equally religious. Some may have been more devout in whatever religion was. Others just had this, you know, well, some idea. Um, But when the waves started rising, they all started bowing. And they all started praying, crying out to their God to do something. And it's really a fascinating scene. When you think about it, these were seasoned seamen. And the fact that they were so frightened is an indication that this was no ordinary storm. But every one of them hit their knees. And at the beginning, they began crying out to their own gods. And that didn't seem to help. The storm continued to swirl, and they grew more and more frightened. And the reason they grew more and more frightened is because they had no confidence in the God to whom they were praying. They had no reason to believe that that God cared about them. They didn't perhaps believe that the God had power to do something, but you know, they prayed, they did all the rituals, they did everything, did, nothing seemed to happen. And then they were so frightened that they began to go outside of their own religion. They borrowed one another, and ultimately, as we see, as they went down and they grabbed Jonah from beneath, not even knowing what he believed and saying, come on up here, maybe you'll have some luck. Maybe whoever it is that you worship. It's an indication that these are religious people. They have an orientation towards 
God, but they don't know God. And the God that they have chosen to worship, the God that they have made up in their mind, they don't, they don't understand, they don't know, they don't trust, and they have no reason to. I think through the sealers, we, we see really the heart of, of humanity here. And it tells us, it says, people will deal with God if they have to, but they won't trust him. The natural bent of the human heart, as one scholar put it, is this, is to believe that God exists, that God wants control of our lives, and that if God gets control of our lives, that'll be the end of all fun and all happiness. That's the bent of the human heart. And one of the things that we also see here is that our true religion or our true faith shows itself when things get rough. But notice that the prayers that the sailors offered were prayers of terror, not experiences of grace. They're essentially bargaining with God. They're offering things up if he will just stop this storm. And it's a natural instinct, and many, many people bargain with God. I remember as a kid reading a biography of, of a guy named Rocky Blyer. Rocky Blyer played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, was not a star, but he was such an iconic figure in that city because of his background. He just was very blue-collar, very rough, not particularly athletic, at least not for NFL standards, but he just was an absolute grinder. And then his story was all the more fascinating because having been in the NFL for a year, he then was drafted and went to Vietnam where he was injured um, and was laid up for a time, and he recovered from his his injuries and then came back and played in the NFL and was a contributor for the, the Steelers dynasty teams in, in the 1970s. And But when he, Blyer's story, when he tells his story, he says that when he was laying wounded on the battlefield in Vietnam, he bargained with God. God, if you will allow me to live, if you'll just get me out of here, I will. And he was, you know, going to do a, a number of, of things. And it just stuck with me. It just somehow didn't seem right. I wasn't a believer at the time, and, and the book was not a book of somebody who was a had now had this profound experience with God and was now living his life for God. It was a guy who was an everman, uh, who worked really hard. He was an overachiever. Um, he believed that there was a God. He made this bargain with God, and he came back, and he worked really hard, and he succeeded. It's just, it's just well, it's another Rocky story just uh, before the other one came out. But it stuck with me because I do think it's an illustration. This is the tendency of, of everyone, whether they're, and, and not even just limited to people who don't know God. I think it's a, a tendency for uh, many people who are believers as well because our instinct kicks in and we, Lord, if you will just do this for me, then I will serve you. I will do these things for you. And bargaining, though, is not an experience of grace. Bargaining is an assumption that we need to do something. Otherwise, God's not going to help us. Bargaining with God is an indication that deep down what we believe is that everything rests upon us and if we just do the right thing, say the right thing, promise the right thing, then maybe God will use his power and do the right thing. And the reason that's important is because there may be people who are here this morning who are here this morning out of a faithfulness to a commitment that you've made out of a bargain with God. And you may have been doing it for years and years and years. 
And while there certainly is something commendable, the problem is there are many people who are filling churches out of their bargaining with God and trying to be faithful to their word with God, maybe even out of fear as, oh no, if I don't keep my word, then God's going to bring that storm back into my life. And they have no real passion for God or for the things of God. And perhaps you probably have not seen any transformation taking place in their life because they're going through the motions out of fear rather than understanding of what God is like. The natural instinct is to deal with God if we have to. The natural instinct is to believe that everything depends on us. What am I going to do in, in bargaining with God? But the natural instinct we see of these sailors It is not the message that Jonah was commissioned to convey, the message that Jonah himself knew and failed to understand. Message that Jonah was to convey, the message that Jonah in, in some senses even unknowingly embodied is the message of the gospel which says that it's rooted not in what we do, it's rooted in what God has done for us. And what God has done for us is enter into our story in the person of Jesus Christ. He became like us. He, he took on our nature. And then he lived the perfect life. And he died in our place as a substitution, a sacrifice. And then rose again to complete the sacrifice and to give us hope, faith. And understanding the difference between, oh no, I need to bargain with God, and understanding that even when we were God's enemies, as Paul writes to the Romans, God entered in and gave us grace. That changes the instinct. It gives substance to our faith. It changes our orientation toward God. How do you know the difference between a bargaining prayer, a prayer of terror, and a prayer of faith. And the answer is this, what do you do when you get out of trouble? What do you do when the trouble cools off? Do you become cold and cool when the prayer is answered, or do you stand in awe, even more amazed? Years ago, there was a film called The End that Burt Reynolds uh, starred in. If you haven't seen it, don't bother. Um, it's not good. But the, the end of it, I think, is, is profound, even though it was intended to be funny. But Burt Reynolds was kind of a you know, self-absorbed jerk. Um, I mean, it was hard for him to play that role, I guess. But, um, and I don't know anything about Burt Reynolds. He was probably a decent guy. But anyway, that's... Uh, but, you know, he, he gets a diagnosis uh, that he is, is dying. And so he, he, he thinks that this is going to be a long, painful death, and so he doesn't want that, so he paves Dom DeLuise to kill him. And throughout the movie, Dom DeLuise is botching these different attempts, and so finally, Burt Reynolds decides, I'm going to just do this myself. And so um, he swims out to sea, and he just keeps on swimming, keeps on swimming until he just seems to come to fatigue. And then he just kind of goes under the water, and the camera begins to pan out. And then after a moment, he comes bursting up from the sea in the distance, screaming, I want to live! 
the camera comes back in and he starts swinging. Lord, Lord, if I, if you give me the strength to get back to sea, I will give you everything that I have. And he gets probably halfway in and he's continuing to pray. Lord, thank you for the strength you give me. Keep, give me more and more strength, Lord. If I can make it back to the sea, I'll give you half of everything that, that I have. And he gets back to the sea, he gets back to the shore, a little further, I'll give you a quarter. And he gets back and he finally says, Lord, it was you that made me sick in the first place. And it's a profound illustration of the natural heart of, of humanity. And since we're created that way, we can all fall back into that. And, and we need just understand that everyone has a natural orientation towards religion. And there's a significant difference between those who recognize and exercise uh, their instinct toward religion and those who stand in awe and believe the promise of God that is given to us in Jesus Christ, the mercy of God. That changes everything. But the primary subplot that we have, I think, in in this portion of the text is, is this, is that we see all through Scripture, but we see illustrated in, the, in this experience with Jonah is that God calls his people, or God's people are called to use our faith for the public good. And this is not just something I'm pulling out of this particular text. It's, it's all throughout the Scriptures. And just to lay the foundation so that we're all on the same page, I mean, just think of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to read for the, for the whole sense of the context. And one of the scribes came up and, uh, and heard uh, them disputing uh, with one another, the, the disciples, and seeing that uh, Jesus answered them well, uh, the, the uh, scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the guy came and was asked, what's the most important thing? It's our orientation, our relationship with God, the way that we relate to God. That is number one, and there is nothing. But Jesus didn't get asked, what are the top two? He threw in the second one, not as a bonus, but because our love for our neighbors is inseparable from our love for God because God has called a people, he has formed a people for the very purpose of blessing those who are around us. You know, Jesus says uh, elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount that you are the salt of the earth. There's a purpose that he has, that we are to be God's instruments in the preservation and the salvation of the world around us. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, while the people were in, uh, in exile, uh, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, God is sovereign in what he's doing here. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and uh, eat their produce. Take wives and have your sons and daughters. Take, uh, take, wives, uh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for, uh, on its behalf. For it's in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, we see this principle that the people of God are called to use their faith. The people of God, we are called to use our faith for the public good. And because that's a, 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 a 
prevailing biblical principle, the, the, the ship's captain here is right when he scolds Jonah. What are you doing sleeping down here? All of us, we're striving, we're trying to row, we're praying, we're offering sacrifices, we, we are at our, our wit's end, and you are down here doing nothing. Get up. Call to your God. So this guy doesn't even know. But he's, he's scolding Jonah because Jonah is guilty. But do you know that Jonah is only guilty of the same thing the church often is? Of being unaware of public need and being uncaring about public need. The world has a reason and a right to reject any church that is sleeping unaware. And just as Jonah is corrected by the ship's captain, so often the church has been and is being corrected and scolded by the world. Because too often the world has to say, wake up, why are you sleeping? Why aren't you doing anything? And what is particularly sad is when there are specific segments of society that just don't even trust the church, don't even believe the church cares anything about them. They become conditioned not to expect anything from the church. And when that happens, their resentment is understandable and justified. And unfortunately, in our culture, the poor fall into that category. poor rarely see the church as their ally. Not the church that has what Jesus says, loves God with all their heart. That's the priority. Because too many in our tribe were too busy ostensibly with God to be worried about the people who are around us. And what's the response of the church when there's great need? Too often I hear two common refrains, however it's said. One is, this is God's judgment, and you don't deserve any grace. This was said a lot of times, many times, too often. Hurricane Katrina wiped out New Orleans, it said... Uh, in, in many other uh, plagues and situations, God's judgment, anybody, it's... And w when that attitude is expressed, it's just simply a modern-day expression of Jonah's self-righteous attitude. And the other, perhaps more common, is this, is I can't make a difference, I'm only one person, or we're not a large, you know, if we were maybe, if we were a megachurch or a particularly wealthy church, we might make a difference. Or uh, the one that's popular right now is, well, the world hates us. They hated Jesus. But the truth is sometimes we just get too wrapped up in our own stuff. We're too wrapped up in our, ourselves. And it's not that we don't think that we can make a difference. It's we don't really care if we can make a difference or an impact in the community where God has placed us. We continue with our religion. Meanwhile, families are breaking up 
economic disparity leaves families on the streets. Children are dying on the streets around the world. And one-third of the world has never even had an opportunity to hear the name of Jesus Christ. I understand the idea that we feel like we can't do anything, that we're insignificant. But this is where I think Jonah is significant here in this, in this story, and even in this chapter. Look at the impact that Jonah's faith, as messed up as he was, not even close to God, running from God, but he knew who his God was in enough. And because of his faith, the sea calmed, met an immediate need. And the sailors, the pagan sailors, all turned to the true God, the ultimate need. I mean, at the end of this chapter, they're all, first they're offering the prayers, but then when they saw what happened when the sea stopped, they stood in awe before God and they offered sacrifices and they, 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 really, they, they stood in awe there. So maybe you can't change anything. Can't God? Can't God through you? Through us? Through his church? John in this chapter teaches us that we're to use our faith for the public good. It's a very important principle because if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be about the things of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is king at all, he is king of all. Or as a more 20th century theologian put it, is that there's not one sphere over this earth over which Christ does not declare it is mine. Some of it hasn't been redeemed yet, as in it doesn't show that, but he is using his people. He will use you and he will use me. The question is, will we go? I've known that this is going to be a challenge and, and, and a heavy message because it, it, it needs to be. And it's not to be scolding our church because, you know, we're at least to some degree stepping up to the plate. But I don't believe we're doing anywhere near what we could be doing. And we won't be doing everything we can be doing tomorrow or next week. But the issue is, as the people that are part of this church, as God's people, begin to consider, how, how do I do this? It, we, we see the example in Jonah, and the answer is not just by rushing everybody to the ballot box and getting the right political people, not disparaging, because politics in its best is used to shape the culture. But how does Jonah make a difference? By dying to himself, living to the glory of God for the benefit of other people. It means we figure out where we can get involved. How will you influence and encourage the people who are around you? How is your faith evidence to them? And allow God to be at work within you and through you. Because by God's grace and by God's power, you and I are capable of being his agents of transformation in this world. Father, we pray with thanksgiving. And yet, fear and trepidation 
As I confess, this was much easier when I was writing it uh, than recognizing the hypocrisy as I'm speaking it. And so, Lord, beginning with me, have mercy. And open our eyes to your glory and to the needs around us. Remind us that you have called us to love with the love that we have experienced. Give us a love that perhaps is weak or non-existent at all for our neighbors, particularly those that are either the most different from us or the most opposed to us. Let us love them. And let us see what you will do when your faithful people die to self and live to you. Lord, transform us, I pray. In Christ, amen.